Good morning again. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. 1 John 5, 6 through 12. Let's go ahead and uh, begin in a word of prayer today. Thank you, Lord, for your continued faithfulness and kindness to us. We thank you that you have sent Christ to redeem a people for your own name. We pray that you would help us today to cling to that hope. And if there be any who does not know this Jesus Christ, that you would help them to repent and believe upon him for salvation today. In Christ's name, amen. Do you believe? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in his word? We live in a strange day. Uh, There's lots of reasons why we live in a strange day. We live in a strange day because people will claim that they love God. People will claim that they believe in God. People will claim to be Christians, and yet these same people will pay no heed to God's word, the Bible. I recall a few years ago I spoke with uh, a local Orville pastor uh, who's part of the Orville uh, Ministerial Association, and uh, he was referring to the Ministerial Association, and he told me, he said, you know, John, not all of us believe in every word of Scripture like that. Red flag number one, right? It's becoming increasingly popular for Christians and even some churches to say that God's word is merely good advice written by God-fearing people, but that it ultimately falls short of inspiration. Some good advice, some good counsel, but ultimately we can't be sure that this actually comes from God. A Catholic told me one time, John, that's just Paul, (laughs) when referring to a passage in Romans. And many people will say the same. Theological liberalism is one such group. They'll say that Paul was a bit behind the times, but we know better now. We follow Jesus, not Paul, is what some claim. And in reality, it is all a variation on the same theme. And the theme simply is this. I know better. I am the one who can impose my understanding and my judgment and my values upon Scripture. And I am the one who can say that I know what this should say, ultimately. And so we have to decide, ultimately, the answer to the question, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe God, or are we going to believe ourselves? And today's passage really hones in on this particular theme because he repeats over and over and over again this idea or this concept of the testimony. And this testimony has its source in God. It comes from God. And the question is, are you going to believe God at his word or not? Let's read the passage in front of us. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And all of this, as I mentioned, is going to uh, revolve around this word testimony. And so we're going to see the object of the testimony, which is Christ. The source is God. God is the one who gives this testimony. The way that we will accept or come to embrace this testimony is through belief, belief in Christ. And then the essence of this is what it produces for us, and that is eternal life. And so we'll begin here in the first part of verse 6. Uh, again, around this word testimony. If you hear the word testimony, um, if you actually, if you hear the Greek word for testimony, you will probably know um, what English word comes from it. The Greek word uh, for testimony is marturia, okay? And some of you may hear a hint of an English word that comes from this. Does anyone know? Martyr, yes, this is where we get our word martyr from, okay? So uh, the Greek word marturia means to testify. Uh, it means uh, to confirm or attest on the basis of personal knowledge. This could also refer to a testimony in court, that kind of a testimony. Um, we could attest to the character or behavior, a statement of approval, or uh, the last one here, as we mentioned already, martyr, a martyr's death, martyrdom, someone who dies for their faith. And of course, the connection here should be obvious. A martyr is somebody who gives a testimony, and then they consequently die because of that testimony that they have given. And so that's the connection here that we have with the word. In today's passage, we are referring to the testimony specifically concerning a person. You could testify to a number of things. You could testify or give testimony that I saw an accident that took place on 30 down here, and this is what happened, and the cars were going roughly this speed, and this happened. You're giving a testimony of something. But in our, our, our passage today, the testimony is concerning Christ and the fact that God himself testifies or gives testimony, gives evidence of the fact that what Jesus said about his life is true. God confirms that, gives testimony uh, to that. And so we see in verse 6 a very clear description of this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, if you're going to give your testimony, say in a courtroom you witnessed a crime take place, uh, the most important thing to do in giving your testimony is to make sure that it's accurate, okay? You're not trying to make sure that you don't offend this person or that person in giving your testimony. You're not trying to doctor it up so that it's palatable in this way or that. When you are in the courtroom, you are under oath, and you simply are required to tell the truth. You're required to be accurate. <clears throat> uh, there is, of course, a severe penalty in a courtroom for lying under oath, uh, because the goal of the court is simply to get to the truth. First, we got to figure out what happened. We got to work through the he said and the, the she said and the, the evidence and all this. We want to get to the truth, and then, of course, they deal out justice. 
And so if we are going to give testimony about Jesus Christ, it's very important to simply do what? Tell the truth, to be accurate, to understand rightly who Jesus is, whether he offends or not, whether he's palatable or not. We simply want to just get to what is true about Christ, and that is what we're trying to do here in this passage. Now remember that the person of Christ is under assault amongst John's readers. And John has been working to set the record straight. You may recall at the very beginning of this letter uh, of 1 John, we read that John was giving a physical description of Christ and emphasizing uh, these, these, uh, the senses, that which we have seen and heard from the beginning, that which we have touched. He's emphasizing Christ's humanity because that was under assault. And so the, the person of Christ is under assault here, uh, and John is trying to set the record straight. And so, in order to do this, what John says is that Jesus came by water and blood. Now, at first glance, this seems to be a little bit cryptic, okay? You're reading through 1 John for your Read Through the Bible in a Year program, and you get to this particular passage and you read through, he came by the water and the blood, and hopefully you don't do this, but you think to yourself, I'm not sure what that means, and you just keep reading and continue to go on and on. <clears throat> what, he came by the water and the blood. This is, again, a little bit cryptic. What's going on? Well, there's really kind of three main views as to what he's talking about here. Um, some would believe that water and blood is a reference to baptism and to communion. Okay? Uh, to um, a believer gets baptized, uh, a believer participates in communion, these two sacraments that the Lord has given to the church. And so some would say it's a reference to that. Uh, another view is that some people think it refers to the side of Christ being pierced and water and blood comes out of the side. And then the third view is that it refers to Jesus' baptism and his death. And I think it refers to this third one. And the reason for that is because of the context. Specifically, what 1 John is saying is he's not just grabbing things out of the air haphazardly and saying, oh, water and blood, da 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 he's, he's, he's specifically saying that water, the water gives testimony to Christ, and the blood gives testimony to Christ. It actually is confirming that what Jesus has said is true. Can you think of any examples in the New Testament where water and blood give testimony to the truthfulness of what Christ has come to do? And of course, the baptism of Christ and the death of Christ. Um, at the baptism of Christ, you know the scene. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and you hear God the Father's voice, okay? Okay. What is this? This is testimony. It's given to say Jesus is who he says he is. And then also at his death, of course, you know that darkness falls over the land. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. The rocks split. And actually, dead men rise from their tombs. Okay? And so in both of these examples where you have the water and you have the blood... You have examples of giving testimony to confirm the validity of Christ's 
claims. John MacArthur says on this, It is best to see the water here as a reference to Christ's baptism and the blood as a reference to his death. These two notable events bracketed the Lord's earthly ministry, and in both of them the Father testified concerning his Son. And that last statement is crucial here. In both events, the Father gave testimony. And so when John says that he came by the water and the blood, and these things give testimony to Christ, I would suggest to us that the best way to understand this is to understand it as referring to the baptism of Christ and the death of Christ. Um, Now, what is important here is, again, specifically in verse 6, he says, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, okay? And this, again, is John's attempt to rescue uh, the true nature of Christ in his deity and in his humanity, because, again, this was under attack in John's day. And so, He's talking to people who might want to claim that, yes, he's Christ in the water, but not by the blood. And so basically, to cut through all of this and explain what he is likely refuting, and that is some people believed that Christ, uh, okay, he kind of came to somehow inhabit this earthly body, these Gnostics, but then right before his death, God the Father snatched the spirit of Christ out of the body, and it was only the heavenly Christ who died on the cross. Okay? There's a lot of different ways that people will try to make this or that and manipulate things. And he's just simply trying to say, no, he was truly God and truly human at his baptism and at his death. This is, this is, this is truly God and truly man. This is actually needed Uh, in order for Christ to accomplish redemption in full. Christ had to be uh, God, right, to die for us. Could you die for another person? No. He, He was sinless, okay? But he also had to be man in that he was dying for humanity, not for the angels or for anything else, but he was dying for man. And so what for John, this is important to keep these ideas together. He came by both. He was truly God, truly man at his baptism. He was truly God, truly man at his uh, death as well. So how do we know that this is true? Well, we know it because God testifies that it's true, and that's what this passage is getting at. We read here, beginning in the second part of verse 6, and the Spirit is the one who testifies uh, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Of course, you know that in the Old Testament, two or three witnesses were required in order to establish the validity of any claim. One person could not accuse another person of a crime as being the only witness to this. It had to be both, or two, or three. And so what God does here is we see this subtle reference to the fact that God fulfills his own requirements. I mean, God fulfills rather than overrides his own laws. He says in the Old Testament, we need two or three witnesses, and wow, just so happens that we have three witnesses of Christ to prove that he is who he says that he is. And the three that testify are the Spirit, 
the water, the baptism, and the blood. Okay, now what we're going to do here is we are going to pause and we are going to do a little bit of a rabbit trail here, okay? Because we have a textual variant here that is probably a little bit more significant than most of them. And so I want to explore this for uh, a moment here. If you are holding in your hands right now a King James Version or a New King James Version, you will see that there is something else in the passage beyond what I have uh, just uh, read. Now, I happen to have with me today my personal copy of the 1611 King James Version, uh, pocket edition here. Uh, And uh, this is the 1611. Um, If you've never seen a 1611 before, this is kind of, you probably can't see it there, but you can see the font and uh, the word is quite a bit different. I actually have, uh, I'll put it up here for you. This is a page from uh, our passage, 1 John 5. And uh, I'm going to read to you what the King James says, um, the, the 1611, and we'll go ahead and zoom in here on this a little bit. If you have uh, this with you, this is uh, zoomed in on verses 7 and 8. Uh, again, uh, this is a scan. You can get scans from every page on the 1611 uh, online for free. And so uh, this says here, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, uh, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are one. Um, so this is referred to, actually, does anybody know what this is called? This is a bonus question. Then we know what this is referred to. The comma, the comma Johannium, okay? That's what this particular section is. And what you'll notice is that in the King James Version, we have here a very clear and concise description of what? The Trinity, okay? In fact, this is the clearest statement bringing all three members of the Trinity into one place in the entire New Testament. Um, Now, you know that scholars have access to various biblical manuscripts, okay? We have manuscripts of the Bible that are in Hebrew and in Aramaic and in Greek. And we actually have thousands of manuscripts available. And what scholars will do is they will take these manuscripts and compare them to one another because what you have is you have scribes and scholars over the years who will copy manuscripts down, and every now and then there are mistakes that are made. Um, And so uh, what scholars will do today is compare them to one another, and the goal is to get to the original, of course. Uh, And by the way, just so everyone knows, we don't have the original original, like the actual piece of paper that Paul wrote the letter to Ephesians on, okay? We have manuscripts, which are copies of these things, okay? Now, the overwhelming majority of textual variants that you can find in your Bible 
are incredibly, incredibly minor. Things like Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ. Minor spelling differences and things like this. Uh, they, they are incredibly, incredibly minor. There are a small amount of textual variants that rise to the level of being more significant than that. And 1 John 5, 7 includes one of those textual variants. Okay? Now, even among the ones that are more significant, such as this one, there are no textual variants, and I'm saying this because part of the application today is going to be that we can trust the Bible, okay? There are no textual variants at all that rise to the level of changing doctrine in any way, okay? If this was in the original, the Trinity is true. If this was not in the original, the Trinity is true, okay? And we can deduce that from other passages in Scripture. So if there's anything that I want to say and hopefully increase our confidence in the Word of God, it is that the vast, vast, vast majority of all of the textual variants are incredibly minor, and of the ones that are a little bit more substantial than that, nothing rises to the level of changing any kind of doctrine at all. We can be confident that what we have in our hands today is the Word of God. Um, the question is, because we're preaching on this passage, the obvious question is, is this comma Johannium part of the original passage or is it not? And I would suggest to us that the overwhelming evidence points to the reality that this was not originally in the letter of 1 John. And I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. Uh, and there are actually many reasons why. This passage, or this section, there are three that bear record in heaven. Let me uh, actually go to this here for you. Okay, so this is the, the passage in, uh, in question. The comma Johannium, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Okay, you kind of see how this really emphasizes the Trinity. This section is only found in eight manuscripts, okay? Of those eight manuscripts, it is in the margin of four of them as a marginal note, which means that there are only four manuscripts on planet Earth that have this statement in the actual text of Scripture itself, okay? Of those four manuscripts that have this in the text itself, the earliest manuscript of those four is from the 16th century. Okay? That's very, 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 very late. That means that we have no evidence that this was in the actual text of Scripture for the first 1,500 years of church history. Okay? Scholars will include a minority reading in the text of Scripture if that minority reading is very, very early, right? Because the earlier the text, the more likely it was from the original, okay? And scholars could include 
something that's in a lot of manuscripts, but is a little bit later, if there's a lot of them, but not always. But to have something that is a minority, minority, minority reading and is very, very, very late is basically guaranteed to not be there. The other reason for this um, is because this passage is completely absent in all of the early church fathers' discussions on the Trinity, okay? This certainly would have been very helpful to have when combating um, some of the uh, Arianism and that kind of a thing, and it's completely absent from all of that. And there's other reasons as well for it. Um, The only reason that this was included in the King James Version is because the humanist Erasmus compiled the Textus Receptus, and he was under a little bit of political pressure to include this particular uh, passage in there, and he said, the reason that I'm not including this is because there are no manuscripts at all that include this. He said, if you can show me just one manuscript that has this, Well, lo and behold, someone finds a manuscript, quote-unquote, finds a manuscript. And it is believed that actually that one was manufactured because it was in the margins in some earlier ones as a scribal note. Someone read this, and they thought, this reminds me of the Trinity, and so then they wrote that in the margins. And then Erasmus was under pressure, political pressure, possibly even a refusal to publish the Texas Receptus unless he included this, and so he includes it. That's why it's in the King James Version, New King James Version, and no other uh, versions of the Bible is because we are confident that this is not part of the original text. I know that there are King James-onlyists that will claim that this is the litmus test of your Bible. If your Bible does not have this, you don't have the Bible, okay? The problem I think that there is with that is if you claim that, uh, that, that, that you believe in the preservation of Scripture, you have to believe that this passage went missing for the first 1,500 years of church history, and then suddenly it came back into circulation again, um, which I think is something that doesn't quite square with the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture, and you have to kind of hold those things in tension. Um, I would say to you that I am personally convinced 100% that this was not in the original text of Scripture. But, again... Whether it is included or not, no doctrine is tampered with. And um, sorry for that little academic uh, rabbit trail, as it were. But first of all, this is very interesting, okay? (laughs) I find this interesting. But if there's anything that I'm trying to take out of this, and I admit this was a little bit of rabbit trail, if there's anything that I'm trying to take out of this, it is simply that I just want to do just one little tiny thing today to increase our confidence that what we have is the Word of God, okay? Even if you walk away from this and you say, I'm not sure about this, again, nothing is tampered, no doctrine has changed. We're not saying, well, uh, you know, if this such and such textual variant is true, then Arianism is true, and if this is true, no, it's, it's all, we have the Word of God and we can be confident of that. And so again, if there's any uh, application we can take away, uh, it is that we can be sure that what we have in our hands is the Bible. What you have is Scripture in your hands. And if anyone is interested 
and more information on this. There is tons and tons and tons and tons of information. And uh, if you want to see the 1611, I can show you that as well. <laughs> but back to the text at hand. Let's look at verses, uh, the second half of verse 6 through verse 7. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. So who's the, the, what's the Spirit referring to? The Holy Spirit, of course. The Holy Spirit testifies to Christ, the truthfulness of his claims. And then you have this statement that there are three that testify. And so who are the three that testify? Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Water, that's the baptism. Blood, the death. And these three agree. Okay? Their testimony agrees, which is important in order to validate a claim. If you have contradictory evidence or contradictory testimonies, you're in trouble. But if they all agree, then your claim is validated. So the question is, how do these three testify to Christ? And this is what we have here. I'm going to put uh, these verses after each one of these, and then we'll look at these verses here as well. Because each one of these passages gives to us the manner in which they testify of Christ. The Spirit, uh, 1 John 4.13, says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. See that? What is the Spirit doing here? He's giving internal testimony. He's testifying that what Jesus said is true. Okay? Then we have Matthew 3. We have the water. How does the water testify? When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Is this testimony? This is testimony that Christ is who he says he is. Uh, and then we have the blood, which is the death, in the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So the darkness is testimony from God. Then you have the curtain being torn in two. The earth shook. Rocks are split. Tombs are open. Bodies of saints walk around. Okay? Come out of the tombs, um, and they appear to many. So the Holy Spirit, the baptism of Christ, and the death of Christ all testify to the truthfulness of the claim. Jesus is who he says he is. That's, if, if you walk away with anything, that's what this is saying. When he says he's testified to Christ, he's simply saying these three things are proofs, are, they're evidence that what Jesus said is true. Just believe in Jesus because look at all of this evidence that we have to that end. There are three witnesses to verify the claim. And you should believe it because we're not talking about human witnesses but a divine witness. Look at the next verse. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. You know what verse 9 is? This is what is referred to as a lesser to greater argument. You know what a lesser to greater argument is? If you believe this, how much more should you believe this? In other words, if you believe the newspaper... How much more should you believe Scripture? Right? If you could believe a human testimony, then how much more should you believe God's 
testimony. God testifies through the Spirit. He testifies through the baptism of Christ, where he spoke audibly at that moment, affirming the truth that Jesus was who he said he was. And God testifies through the death of Christ. When it seemed for a moment that all of creation was going to be undone, these testimonies are worth believing, is what John is telling us. If you can accept a human testimony, then you must accept these greater testimonies. The verse ends with, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. What is that testimony? It's given in the next verse. This is the way to the testimony is belief. Verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. Okay, so how do you accept this testimony? Belief. What it says, whoever believes. How, how do you accept? Okay, so you're telling me that what God has done is he's given testimony through these three witnesses that Jesus is who he says he is. Well, how do I accept that testimony? Belief. This is starting to sound somewhat familiar to something that we call the gospel. This is how you, you believe and you trust in Christ and Christ alone. There are two responses that you could have to verse 10, to God's testimony concerning his son. You could believe, and if you do that, you have the testimony in you, the verse says. Or you can not believe. And what do you do in that instance? You accuse God of lying. In light of that, one commentator says, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Unbelief is not a passive action. It's not passivity. You can't say, well, belief in Christ is an active choice to go here, but unbelief is just passive. No, belief is an active choice to go here, and unbelief is an active choice to go here. There's no middle ground. And we know this because the verse specifically says, if you choose unbelief, you are calling God a liar. There's not this neutral territory, people who are on the fence. I haven't made up my mind. You have made up your mind. Okay, you've made your choice. And so unbelief, again, as this author says, is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. It is a sin to not believe on Jesus Christ. If you do that thing, then you are sinning against God. And there is eternal wrath to pay for this. We are commanded to believe in Jesus Christ. It's not a suggestion. It is not a recommendation. Belief in Jesus Christ is essential. One commentator clarifies, it is inconsistent to profess belief in God, as John's opponents did, and yet disbelieve what God has said. That's the heart of verse 10. And that goes back to the opening illustration that I gave on all of these so-called Christians and so-called churches who say, we believe in God, but... We want to have a Sharpie handy when we're going through this or a pair of scissors handy when we're going through this, okay? 
It's inconsistent. I believe in God, but I don't believe what he said. That's the state of our world today. And that's what verse 10 is, is driving at. It's driving at, if, if you don't believe, then you're calling God a liar. There are lots of people who do this today. In fact, it may be accurate to say there are more people, even amongst professing Christians, who do this and disbelieve portions of God's Word rather than people who don't. One immediately thinks of Psalm 50 in verse 21. You thought I was like you. You made the miscalculation, you made the error, you made the sin, of making the claim that I, God, was like you. Um, And we tend to do that. Mankind repeatedly seeks to create God in our own image rather than recognizing that we are created in God's image. This is, at, this, is at, this is part of what is at the heart of the question, you know, well, why would a good God send anybody to hell? Why do we even ask that question? Because you thought I was like you. Right? The questions that we ask regarding God's justice almost always have self as the starting point. And that is why we get it wrong. We get it wrong before we even get out the door because we're saying, I'm starting here rather than I'm starting here. And that's the difference. Of course, you know, Lewis coined that phrase, God in the dock. Okay? God God is, he's the one being judged and scrutinized. Okay? We tend to think God is in the dock. Okay? If you can give me a rational reason, God, why you allowed this tragedy to happen, then maybe I'll choose to believe in you. He's not the one on trial. (laughs) We're the ones on trial. He gets to do whatever he wants. He's God. You thought I was like you. I love, this is Sibs. God delights to confound carnal wisdom (laughs) as enmity to him and robbing him of his prerogative, who is God only wise. We must therefore walk by his light and not the blaze of our own fire. God must light our candle, or else we are like to abide in darkness. God is just, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Just, he confounds human wisdom. Verse 10, therefore, is a rebuke to every last person who claims to believe in God, but not what God wrote in Scripture. And God delights to confound the wisdom of those people. Let that not be said of us. A man one time remarked about theological liberalism, and he says that the theologically liberal person looked down the well of human history, and all he saw at the bottom of the well was his own face reflected back to him. <laughs> that, that, in other words... He tries to construct this view of Christ and this view of God and this view of Scripture. And after he's done all this work and edited this and edited that and said this should go and this should stay and this should leave and all of this, that version of Jesus suspiciously looks like himself, his own reflection. And we do the same thing. This is not, I mean, right? We have a tendency to think, I don't know that God would do that. Where are you starting from? You're starting from self when you do this. 
Some people like to make Jesus in their own making. We don't get to make Jesus in our own image or only believe in some of his attributes. If you claim to believe in God, then here's the simple truth. If you claim to believe in God, then you'll believe what he said. That's the end of it. The end. No discussion, no debate. That's, it's over with. Either he said it or he didn't. The result of all of this is eternal life. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in where? His Son. Whoever has the Son, Jesus Christ, has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Eternal life or eternity in heaven is something that comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. Jesus alone. The conclusion is certain, according to John here. If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. Not up for grabs. There's no third way. There's no halfway house. There's no halfway covenant. There's only life or death, Christ or no Christ. As Peter and John said one time, uh, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Where then do we go from here? The topic of the passage today, it centers around this word testimony. The testimony we've seen is regarding the person of who? Jesus Christ. And the source of the testimony is in God himself. God has verified that Jesus is who he says he is through these three witnesses. The spirit, the water, and the blood. It's verified in, it's sourced in God. And the way that we access that Jesus Christ is not by works, not by effort, but through belief. You either believe what God said in his testimony or you disbelieve it. No third way. No neutral territory. And the result of this testimony, of embracing this testimony through belief, is what? 11 to 12. Eternal life. You see the flow of the text here? It's a testimony. It's about Jesus. God confirmed that the testimony is true through these three witnesses. You embrace this testimony through believing in it, and then the result is eternal life. Today's passage sounds suspiciously like the gospel. Kind of because it is the gospel here today. Somewhat directly, actually. God the Father has proven to us that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and that believing in him results in eternal life. Um, so let me maybe... Summarize the passage this way. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth taking on human nature. He was baptized and he died for our sins. God the Father confirmed this to be true. If you will believe on this Jesus, then you will have eternal life. If you do not believe on this Jesus, you are calling God a liar and you stand condemned. It's as simple as that. And so if you have not repented and believed on Jesus Christ for your own salvation, today is the day for that to believe on him. At the end of the day, you either believe God's word or you do not believe God's word, and your life is a testimony to what you believe. Application number one, trust the whole Bible. 
you have confidence, you can have confidence that your Bible is the word of God. That's what the passage tells us today, trust this testimony. But we also got a little bit of an extra through the, the, the textual variant, even if there are these textual variants, it's still, we still come to the conclusion that the Bible is what it says that it is. So we can trust the whole Bible. Number two, believe the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, the water testimony of Christ's baptism, and the blood testimony of Christ's death and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The passage is pushing you to trust in these three witnesses. And so do that. Trust in Christ alone. And of course, the final one is trust that Jesus is the exclusive way to salvation. This is not something, again, that's open for just everyone can choose their own way kind of a thing. Christ and it's Christ alone. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the testimony that you've provided in your word that uh, Jesus Christ is who he says that he is. I pray that you would help us to refrain from making Christ or making your word or making you in our own image. We have a tendency to think that you think just like us, and this is the height of arrogance. It is a claim that is nowhere found in Scripture. Uh, you are not in the dock. We are in the dock. And so we pray that you might help us to accept the testimony that you've given in your word and that we would trust you for salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.